Uh, we've been in a series in 1 Samuel, uh, but we're taking a break from that series this morning because the first Sunday of every month, we this year we've been looking at a particular Christian practice or discipline that we think is just key to living the Christian life. And then the rest of that month during the educational hour, we've been having classes that kind of get into the more nuts and bolts of how do you do this? How do you fast? How do you, how do you figure out your spiritual gifts so that you can serve? And today it's how do you pray? Prayer, pretty important. And to, to learn about prayer, we're going to open to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11, where the disciples simply ask Jesus, can you teach us how to pray? Math, or Luke, I'm, I was so used to being in Matthew for so long. It's Luke, though. It's Luke, chapter 11, uh, verses 1 through 13. This is God's Word. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And Jesus said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks it will be open. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Uh, Gracious Heavenly Father, we say, Father, you are our good Father, and you give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. We ask for the Holy Spirit this morning so that we could come to know what it truly means that you are our Heavenly Father. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, The disciples could have asked Jesus lots of questions. We have a lot of Jesus' questions to the disciples recorded for us. But honestly, the disciples don't ask Jesus much. When they do ask him, often they ask him, 
how to pray. He, they could have asked him how to live or how to speak. How do you heal? How do you love? How do you teach? But they asked, could you teach us how to pray? Could it have been that they came to understand that Jesus' life, how he lived, how he taught, how he healed, how he loved, that it was all empowered by prayer? I think so. And so when they asked Jesus to teach them something, they said, teach us how to pray. And Jesus obliges. Um, And as always, his teaching is surprising. One of the most frustrating things to me about the Bible is that it rarely reads like Ikea instructions. If you would just lay it out for me step by step and tell me exactly what to do, Uh, then I would do it. But for some reason, Jesus never does that. Instead, he talks to us in stories and riddles. Rather than laying down a technique, here he tells us stories about what what God is like and who we are in relationship to him. And what we learn from it all is this. How we pray is not as important as who we're praying to. It's not how we pray, but it's who we're praying to. And that we pray, that matters. And so to illustrate this point, I'm going to go to the story in the middle of our our section of Scripture here. It's the story of a man who is in bed at midnight. Now, there are some nights when I still go to bed at midnight, and you might too. Um, But in that culture, to be woken up at midnight, it would be the middle of the night. You can call me, in other words, and I'll still be up at midnight. That wouldn't have been the case here. So, um, it's a little off-putting for the neighbor to drop by with a request, knocking at the door, at midnight, saying that there's some guests there that he needs to entertain and he needs some bread. Now, having bread for a guest was a pretty big deal in that culture that valued hospitality. Not having bread to offer a stranger who was passing by would have been a source of great shame. And so we should recognize that there's real need here. And this brother is expressing it knocking at the door at midnight, asking for bread. But here's the thing. The owner of the house ain't coming. It's the middle of the night. Um, And there's no way uh, for the neighbor to answer the request without waking his whole family up. So they weren't living in a mansion. This is likely a a one-room house, and so you have all the children sleeping in the same room with the parents, and all the animals are there too in the stable which is connected to the house, you know, just for (laughs) ambiance. And so to wake up 
the man, for the man to get up and get the bread is to wake up the, the children and the cow and the duck and the goat. Did they have ducks? I don't know. They, there were ducks there in the story. Use your sanctified imagination. And so he says, I don't want to do that. Go away. And eventually, the man who is knocking gets what he asks for. And the question is, why? And the text says it wasn't because of friendship. It's midnight, and the ducks are asleep. Friendship has its limits, in other words. But the the text says it was because of the man's impudence. Some of your texts say boldness. Bold is polite. Uh, The Greek word really means lack of sensitivity to what is proper. It's a word that is more accurately translated shamelessness, rudeness, discourtesy. Impudence is a pretty good translation. Now I just want you to... Let that one settle in. Jesus says, this is the model for prayer. Pray like that. Rudely, discourteously, relentlessly. Pray without sensitivity to what is proper. Bother God. The word bother is in the story. Um, the neighbor continues with shameless persistence and eventually gets what he wants. Here's the question. Should we pray that way? If you respect God, should you pray that way? Why would God want us to approach him like this? Why would a God invite us to approach him like this? And here's the answer. It's the only reasonable answer. The answer is that we are truly being invited to approach him as a child would approach a loving father. The only person that you would invite to continually approach you this boldly with any request, without concern for what is proper, is your kid. And so Jesus wasn't joking around when he said he wants us to come to him and to receive a spirit of adoption, the grace of adoption, the spirit of sonship. Here Jesus is truly inviting us to approach his father as our father. And so it's no accident in verse 1 when his disciples ask, Lord, teach us how to pray. The first word out of his mouth is father. And after telling this story about the rude neighbor, Jesus quickly returns to his point in verses 11 through 13 when he again speaks about God's fatherly love. The Lord's Prayer begins with an invitation to address God as Father, and Jesus ends his teaching on prayer with a reaffirmation of the Father's welcome. God's fatherly love and welcome is the point. So let's put it together. The disciples asked, teach us how to pray. Jesus' answer, 
pray like a child. Lord, teach us how to pray. Pray like a child. There's things that kids don't care about. And the first thing that they don't care about is technique. The form doesn't matter. They don't even say please or thank you most of the time. They just come. That's why I love Jesus' teaching in verse 2. This against a backdrop of a culture of prayer that believed it needed to be big and impressive to merit God's favor. And against that backdrop, Jesus says this, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins as we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. 36 words. Short, staccato phrases. It's even shorter than when he talks about this at other times. He's trying to get the... They would have been thinking, and? Well, that's fine, but what... It takes four seconds to say that. I've timed myself over and over again. Average four seconds. 36 words. He's trying to get their mind off of technique. What else could he be doing other than saying, guys, it's not that hard? Or maybe what's hard about this has very little to do with the words that you are using. 36 words. And the first one is the most important. Father. In Jesus' day, that would have been radical. Jewish prayers stressed God's sovereignty, His lordship, His glory, His covenant, His, His transcendency. When Jesus teaches us to pray, He chooses a title that drips with intimacy, with nearness. It is so personal. And I know that there are concerns and pains as we think about the word father. If our father didn't treat us right. If our father hurt us. But just consider the wholesomeness of this word on the lips of Jesus. Everything about the best of what a father can bring. God as parent unconditionally providing for us and loving us. Father. With one word, Jesus releases his people from having to make any special effort to guarantee access to him. He turns prayer into a child's conversation with their parent. Nothing exposes our mess like prayer. When we slow down to pray we are immediately confronted with how unspiritual we are, how distracted we become, how selfish we are, and how filled with doubt we are. Those things are all true of us, and yet they do not 
disqualify us from praying. Consider the Psalms. The Psalms are inspired and they be messy. God in the Psalms, written mostly by David, listens to fits of rage, overreacting despair, naive joy, and then calls David a man after his own heart. When it comes to prayer, God isn't grading us. He's talking to children. And if God can delight in prayers as dysfunctional as the ones we find wedged right into the middle of our Bibles, then he can certainly handle yours and mine without us having to clean them up. We can give the first draft, the rough draft, full of typos and rants. We don't have to give the polished, edited version. C.S. Lewis said, lay before him what is in us, not what ought to be in us. The way we change our motives isn't to sort them out in silence, but to bring them to God and let him sort them out from the inside out. It's just so interesting. We know we don't need to clean up our act in order to become a Christian, but when it comes to praying, we forget that. We forget that the the gospel applies as much to our prayer life as it does to anything else. So I love this quote from Paul Miller. He says, The gospel... God's free gift of grace in Jesus only works when we realize we don't have it all together. The same is true of prayer. The very thing that we are allergic to, our helplessness, is what makes prayer work. It works because we're helpless. We can't do life on our own. Prayer mirrors the gospel. In the gospel, the Father takes us as we are because of Jesus and gives us his gift of salvation. In prayer, the Father receives us as we are because of Jesus and gives us his gift of help. We look at the inadequacy of our praying and give up, thinking something is wrong with us. God looks at the adequacy of his Son and delights in our sloppy and meandering prayers. You don't care about technique. 36 words, and the first word is Father. Secondly, you don't worry about etiquette. To approach God as a child is to approach Him boldly and persistently. Throughout the passage, we're told that prayer is like a shameless person knocking persistently. And it's not just the story. Look at verses 9 and 10. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks the door will be open. Now the tense of those verbs is present tense and it's continuous action. In other words, we're being told to keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. And that's the thing about knocking. You never knock just once. 
if you're in the basement and you hear a, do you think somebody's at the door? No, Katie and I are like, that's the dog. (laughs) What should we do? Let's wait and see if we hear it again. Unless it's done repeatedly, knocking doesn't work. The text says, do this persistently with a kind of boldness. And we see that kind of boldness in the saints of old. I thought this week about Abraham in Genesis 18. And God is about to wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah, where some of Abraham's relative lives. And Abraham begins to pray. And he says, Lord, if there's 50 good people there, will you wipe them out? For my sake, will you not do that? (laughs) And God answers his prayer. And then Abraham goes back a second time. He says, well, what if there's 20 good people? And God says, okay, I won't do it if there's 20 good people. He said, well, like, let me ante up a little bit. What if there's 10 good people? Well, I'm not going to do it. He just keeps going. Knock, 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 knock. In the Psalms, time and time again, we see the psalmist doing the same thing, arguing with God, shamelessly reminding him, of the promises that he's made to him, pressing God to be consistent, to be true to the promises that he's made, saying things like, God, you won't kill me. Who's going to praise you if you kill me? (laughs) Bartering, arguing, pestering. How do people talk like that? How do they approach the king of creation? like that it's what we've been saying the only people who can approach us like that are our children if you come to if katie wakes me up at 4 a.m and says honey will you get me a glass of water i will say if my kid wakes me up at 4 a.m and says give me a glass of water i'll probably do it for my kid There's no other ways to explain the aggressive prayers we find in Scripture than that when we come to Jesus Christ, our relationship with God radically changes. We experience a change of status. I am a child of God through faith in Christ. And the question before us is, have we taken the liberties afforded to us by our adoption? What would it look like if we did? We come to God messily, boldly, and finally trustingly. It's important to realize that this parable of the the neighbor at midnight, it isn't an allegory. An allegory, in an allegory, every feature of the story corresponds to a spiritual truth. That's not the case in a parable. So one of the points that the parable makes is that we're like the neighbor at the door. But it is not true that God is like the one in bed with the kids. God is not like the sleepy friend who won't come to the door. God is not asleep. God is not grumpy. He's not reluctant. He's not Mr. Neighbor in the parable. Then what's the message? Well, in verses 5 through 8, 
he gives us a picture of friendship that has reached its limits. And in verses 11 through 13, he gives us a picture of fatherly love that has no limits. So here's the point. Look at verse 13. There's three really important words in the middle of that verse. How much more? Those are wonderful words. And they are the message. If impudence gets results when friendship is stretched beyond limits, and if fatherly love gives without limit, how much more does our Heavenly Father give? How much more can we expect results from a God who is a generous neighbor, a Heavenly Father, not asleep in bed, but who is up, eagerly awaiting for us to drop by. He loves to give to those who ask. He is more inclined to give what we need than the best Heavenly Father is. That's the message. That's the promise. And so the direction is pray with a sense of security in the Father's love. And he tells us that because it's something we need to remember. Because maybe the thing we fear the most when we come to pray is God's silence. We have prayed for good things and we haven't gotten those things. What if I pray and the cancer doesn't disappear? What if I don't get the job? What if I don't get pregnant? What if she doesn't come back? What if he remains addicted? We all experience the silence of God. And you see, without trust in a loving Heavenly Father, we suppress the disappointment that God's silence leaves with us. We build a wall to protect ourselves from the God that we pray to. Or we carefully nuance our prayers, guarding ourselves against a God who might disappoint us. But with trust, we can come to a God we know and we can say boldly with brutal honesty, what were you thinking? Where were you? I wasn't asking for a new car. I was asking for help. I was asking for healing. The thing that he promises at the end of the passage is his Holy Spirit. The Bible never promises that we will never feel like we're in a desert. But the Holy Spirit is the personal presence of a loving God. And what the Bible does promise is that we will never be in the desert alone. And it does promise this, that eventually he turns deserts into pools of water, a parched land into streams of water, 
And if you trust the character of the God you are praying to, you can drag your faith through that desert. It doesn't reveal a God that we can perfectly understand. What the text reveals is a God we can perfectly trust. And trust is the certainty that God hears and that He cares. He gives us His Holy Spirit, His comforting presence, and in the end, He will give us all things. And here's the other thing. It's not only silence, is it? That's not the only thing we've received from the hand of our Father. How many times has He answered a prayer for us? Here we're called to enter into the world of a child where all things are possible. Little children can't imagine that their parents won't eventually say yes. They know that if they keep pestering their parents, eventually they will give in which is mostly true. Um, I'll just tell you, God will surprise you if you're expectant. So I received a text message this week, and I read it to Katie, and as we read it, we just cried because we felt in the midst of a desert season, in a moment, God's care. So I had been wrestling with almost a a spiritually oppressive sadness. My heart was just so heavy and broken. And I just kind of wanted to give up on things. And then I got this text when I woke up in the morning. Good morning, Ben. Praying for you this morning. It was kind of a strange prayer, but I'll let you know what it was. I was impressed to ask the Lord to protect your heart from too much sadness. I hope that's not too weird for you. But I know you carry a great deal of care in your heart. And you have your own life and family as well. So Heavenly Father, I ask for a protective barrier and layer to come over Ben. To keep him from too much sadness. And for great grace for those things that should should transpire in his life. Amen. And I thought, he sees me. The heavenly, it's not just silence and deserts. It's prayers like that and a God who sees and comes through in surprising ways. And then hope is born. How we pray isn't as important as the God we believe in. And that leaves us with this question. And this is like the real end. So I've ended it three times. This is like the final end. It's like the return of the king. You thought it was over. Here's the final thing that we talk about. Leaves us with this question. Who do you believe you're praying to? It is the thing that will shape your prayer life more than any technique. Who one believes God to be is the most It's most accurately believed, not in any credo, but it's revealed in how we pray to God. And so when you utter the words, dear God, what is the reaction on the divine face 
that you believe is listening to you? What are the thoughts running through God's mind as you speak to him? What is his mood and posture? Dear God, sorry to bother you, but... Dear God, I know you're really busy, but... Dear God, I know I haven't stopped by for a while, but... Now what about this? Father. That's a different starting place. And one that fills our prayers with power and faith. Let me pray for us. Father, there is something I want to tell you. But there have been errands to run bills to pay, arrangements to make, meetings to attend, friends to entertain, washing to do. And I forgot what it is I wanted to say to you. And mostly I forgot what I'm about or why. Oh God, please forgive me for the sake of Jesus Christ. Father, There's something I want to tell you, but my mind races with worrying and watching, with weighing and planning, with rutted slights and pothole grievances, with leaky dreams and leaky plumbing and leaky relationships, and I try to plug it all up and my attention is preoccupied with loneliness, with doubt, with the things I covet, and I forget that what I want to say to you But what I want is you. Oh God, don't forget me please for the sake of Jesus Christ. Father, there's something I want to ask you. But I stumble along on the edge of a nameless rage. Haunted by a hundred floating fears. Haunted by fears of war, of losing my job, of failing, of getting sick and old having loved ones die, of dying. And I forget the real question I want to ask. But I know what I want is you. Oh, Heavenly Father, perhaps you've already heard what I wanted to tell you. But what I want to ask in my blundering way is, don't give up on me. Don't become too sad about me. Father, laugh with me. Try with me again, and I will try with you too, because you are my heavenly Father. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.